I V M. World is trying to wake India up from its impulse. China's realized it's impossible to awaken a guy who's pretending to be asleep. Nobody's blaming me, cause I'm asleep. <laughs> fine, fine. Together, guys. Let's now take a look what India has done during these two months, which, in a nutshell, is regarded as the seven scenes. China Xinhua News released this racist clip titled "Seven Deadly Sins," that mocked India over the Doklam crisis in August 2017. The video featured someone wearing a turban and a patchy, glued-on beard as a rather distasteful caricature of Indians. Was this a part of a larger Chinese plan to discredit India? And does China have a grand strategy to take over the world? Manoj Keval Ramani joins us on the Pragati Podcast to dispel commonly held myths about China. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast. A weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. We are your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Srinath. Welcome to the second part of a two-part series on the Pragati Podcast, where we are busting myths about China, the Chinese government, and Chinese society. Many of us in India are quite familiar with American politics, society, and pop culture. This also applies to a certain extent to Europe, Canada, and Australia. But India's northern neighbor, China, remains a mystery to most of us. In episode sixty-six, we spoke to China expert Manoj Keval Ramani about four myths around China. We explored whether China is a country of one people, one language, and one party. We talked about whether China has a strong, efficient, and meritocratic government. We discussed whether China is still communist and whether the government owns everything. We have four more myths to explore in this episode. My guest Manoj is an associate fellow for China studies at the Takshashila Institution. Previously, Manoj worked as a journalist in India and China for over eleven years. He even worked with CGTN, the China Global Television Network, an English media house owned by the Chinese government. Manoj also has a weekly newsletter called Eye on China that comes out every Friday in Pragati. Eye on China tracks various developments in China from an Indian perspective. Do read the latest issue on thinkpragati.com and subscribe. Also, do you listen to the Pragati podcast on iTunes? Do leave us a rating; it means a lot to us. We'll be back with Manoj after this short break. Hey everybody! It's another great week on IVM Podcast. If you're not following us on social media, please do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, please remember to tell a friend about podcasting. We really want you to spread the word. You are our biggest ambassadors. I tell you every week. This week on Cyrus says we have creative director and producer Joel Pereira. Joel talks about working across platforms like TV, print, and digital. On Simplified this week, Chuck Narain and Trika do an episode on China and its relationship with India and other neighboring countries. On the scene and the unseen, Amit Verma decodes the ILNFS crisis, India's banking system and regulatory regime with journalist Vivek Kaul and economist Ashutosh Datar. This week on Shunya One, Shilu Ditya and I talk to Sanket Shah about InVideo and the amazing journey that they've had over there. On Geek Fruit, Jishnu and Tejas embark on a hot take fiesta of Will Smith's entire career and give the definitive ranking of all his movies. On the Kinetic Living podcast, Coach Swarmi spoke to Ashton, doctor who is a habit coach. Listen to this episode to find out his interesting insights on eating fruits. And with that, let's go on with your shows. Welcome back. Hi Manoj, welcome back to the Pragati podcast. Hi Pavan, thanks. Good to be here. Earlier, you were here on the show to talk about various myths around China, and we have many more. And I like that even last time we used these myths as an excuse to really understand about China rather than just you know address a specific myth. Hmm. So here are a second set of myths that you can deal with. Perfect. So we dealt with four in the past, and here is myth number five: the Chinese media is a mouthpiece of the Chinese government. And if I can extend that a little. Uh, i have the sense that the way we enjoy freedom of speech in india and even that comes with a lot of constraints even that freedom of speech does not exist in china nor does much of privacy exist in china but let's start with the media hmm. i should so this is a myth that is sort of um i'd sort of we're closest to saying yes to this myth but i still sort of hold off on that yes and that's because there is an entire sort of world underneath this framework of being the government or the party's mouthpiece within which the media operates in china and uh, as somebody who's worked with state media uh, in the past um 
that was an interesting experience because it exposed me to some of this uh, sort of the undercurrents that play out uh, within this broad perception of the media being uh, the party or the government's mouthpiece. Just to remind our listeners, you were with CGTN yes. for three years. This yes. Is uh, how what does it expand Which to? Was between 2013 and 2016. So this is just when Xi Jinping has assumed power and he's beginning with his anti-corruption campaign and all those things. And there's lots of hope that. Things are going to become even more open because things were reasonably open. And what is CGTN again? CGTN is China Global Television Network. It was previously CCTV. Um, there's still CCTV, which is China Central Television. Um, but the more outward facing arm of it, the English network, got rebranded recently as CGTN. So for three years, you had no media freedom yourself? In some ways, yes. So there wasn't uh, the space where you could necessarily... Uh, it wasn't conventional journalism as journalism would be. So this is how I would frame it. Our understanding of journalism and the media's role in society as the fourth estate is essentially about checking power, sort of talking truth to power, being in some ways adversarial to authority. If you were to define it in that sense, yes, the Chinese media is not adversarial. And there's this quote from George Orwell, right, which... I'm mangling it right now, but anything that doesn't tick someone off, anything that you put out as a news yeah. outlet is essentially PR or propaganda. Yeah, um, so I'm going to look at PR and propaganda and uh, that's very true. And I think if you were to take that as a mandate... Uh, and that's would, a very high bar. Yeah, and if you were to take that as a bar also, you will find elements of genuine journalism in China. It's not that it doesn't exist. Right. But so, And even in India, if you put that as a bar, it's 90% really yeah. that what uh, we yeah. read is junk. I mean, it's unfortunate, but that bar is high because that's... It should not be... That shouldn't be... We shouldn't be seeing that bar as high. Um, as somebody who's been in journalism, who's worked as a journalist, I sort of... Uh, and I also have a sense of that there are different practicalities which you adapt to. And there is an ideal that you wish to aspire to. But yeah, if I was to look at the Chinese media, so I'd first look at it from the point of view of uh, ownership to answer the question of it being the party or the state's mouthpiece. So yes, predominantly it's all, the media is owned by the state. There are state investments at different levels. So there are central and state and provincial and all that. So you've got uh, party and state investment in that and uh, none of it is free in that sense. You have a line which is pursued. And the Communist Party has been conscious of propaganda. So I would use the word propaganda not in its pejorative terms, but in its pure sort of from a utility perspective that this is about dispensing a message. But the Communist Party's propaganda department, the Central Propaganda Department, was established in 1924. The party was set up in 21, 1921 and the propaganda department in 1924 and the armed wing of the party is set up three years later. So it just gives you an anecdotal sense of how important propaganda was even at those early stages in their thinking. Um, going forward, obviously, it became far more important. I mean, and, and it's always been important. It's in always been communist important. Uh, absolutely, well. absolutely, and not just domestically. Um, Mao Zedong famously spoke to uh, foreign journalists uh, who ended up writing books on him, um, and he because he was aware of. The, the importance of some of this stuff. And his propaganda is not just about journalism. It's also about public speeches, public statements and myth-making. Absolutely. Um, and when he retreated to Yan'an uh, during the long march in the 1930s as during the civil war with the nationalists, um, Mao sort of held this long propaganda sessions where he would speak for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, and that's sort of just, that's just a context of how important messaging was and how important they considered messaging to be. Now, if I was to fast forward and look at modern day media in China, yes, a lot of it is state owned, a lot of it is state controlled, but there is a lot of different interests also playing out in the media. A good example for that is, uh, um, and this I'm just talking at a macro central government level. There are elements within the Chinese media which will critique how the Belt and Road is being implemented. Your critique won't be about Xi Jinping. It won't even be about the central committee of the party or the Politburo, or the Standing Committee. It'll be about how state-owned enterprises are choosing certain investments and how they need to be careful about some of these investments. And that's a veiled critique at the government, which is sort of giving, at the party also, which is giving a blanket sort of clearance for companies to go ahead and invest. So there is those sorts of elements. There will be critiques 
of the foreign ministry at times in terms of how it's handled certain issues, how it should be stronger at certain times, it should not be strong at certain times. Now, would you see these as social? So, like in a country like India, if a certain network is critiquing the government of a certain policy, we'd probably look at it as a particular section of public opinion being represented. I'm not certain in the Chinese media you would necessarily see that that is necessarily public opinion being represented, but those are interest groups being represented, and those interest groups have a certain sort of power. And even there, you're saying those interest groups will allow certain journalists free reign within a domain. So, not necessarily those interest groups will allow journalists. So, I would come to the journalism in my second bit, but this I'm basically talking about opinion expression, Fair a reflection of public opinion. Um, so, you will find some diversity of public opinion. There was much more before Xi Jinping came to power as part of his anti-corruption campaign. There has been a change, um, and it's become the space has shrunk for some of this to happen, but it still exists. Um, so, in that sense, largely the party is becoming a mouthpiece of. Uh, the government and the state. Um, this is also reflected. Uh, so a few years ago, before Xi Jinping came to power, the sort of guiding philosophy that was there uh, with regard to the media, one of the sort of central philosophies was that, oh, the government and the party state is open to uh, supervision through public opinion. Now, how do you gauge public opinion? Part of it is social media, part of it is mainstream media. So there was that opening, at least philosophically, that was there. And you could see that public criticism was taken into account much more seriously, even about certain important policies. Under Can Shiden- I say that, like, in a way, um, you know, when you look at dictatorships and so on, I mean, and I'm not saying that China mm-hmm. is quite one, maybe it is more so under Xi Jinping, uh, dictators are very, very susceptible to public opinion, right? I mean, they're very fragile in that sense. Absolutely. They always want to be popular. Absolutely. And the original, I think, a meaning of the word uh, tyrant or tyranny was yeah. uh, the idea of a popular dictator. Absolutely. Caesar was popular. Absolutely. Right. So the, in that sense, they're always more critically yeah. examining public opinion than yes. even a democracy where you yeah. sort of allow expression. Absolutely. To Absolutely. I mean, here you're examining it from multiple points of view. One is... Uh, you want to have this space so that you have a certain public credibility. You don't want to be seen as a dictator. Right. Um, so you have a you certain You want to be considered popularly legitimate. Yeah, you want to be considered legitimate in some ways. And therefore, you want to give the media some space. Uh, and that space exists. So there is this sort of push and pull that exists. Um, the other thing is that uh, it's also important for a central government that wants to rein in local leaderships to meet its goals and its targets and follow its diktats and follow its uh, way of functioning to some degree. It's important to have the media have a certain say because that's where you get feedback. That's the second line of feedback. Absolutely. That's your feedback loop. Um, So if a local sort of, if in a certain city in Hunan province, there is a mining company which has deep connections with the local party leadership and which is sort of, you know, displacing people, polluting the region and all of that. And there is a public resentment brewing. The local government, local leadership can actually clamp down on the media. But if there is investigative journalism, which actually creates, which puts that story out, or which gets that feedback through public mechanisms, it's useful for the central government. Uh, it's not not entirely uh, not useful. So, so there is that element of and, why the media exists. And in previous episode with you, we spoke about how targets are sometimes fudged. Absolutely. And so you need some independent source. Of yeah, you need some sort of verification because you can't constantly be sending central government teams at every place to. They're doing a lot of that, but there's a fatigue to that. Yeah. Um, Inspector and Raj. It doesn't cannot work. Go on yeah. too long. So the media, therefore, uh, and I sort of take this particular strand of thought back to the idea of our notion of an adversarial media, to a notion of a media that is in some ways working within this rubric saying, we need to work with the government to improve governance. And that's where your role is. So therefore, it's not adversarial, but it is in some ways providing a corrective measure. Uh, so therefore, you will see investigative journalism. There's a lot of uh, work that's been done by people like Luo Changping, who has exposed even high-level corruption uh, to very close colleagues of Hu Jintao. Uh, yes, uh, the fact that that man has quit journalism now in China is an indication of how the space has shrunk. Um, but there are papers which are sort of like Beijing News which is owned by the Beijing municipal government which have published excellent reports detailing 
scandals, uh, so whether they be scandals of, say, abuse in kindergartens, whether they be sort of mining issues and other sort of stories, pollution, these sorts of stories, uh, whether they be about, uh, Beijing News is one, the paper is another, um, Southern Weekly, Southern Metropolitan Daily. Um, these are all net papers which have done interesting, good stories, which have had impact. Um, and they have done stories which are, which sort of check local power. Now, the fundamental compromise that these journalists make is that we're not necessarily going to question the system or the legitimacy of the system, of the party state and the party system. But within that, so until you you take for granted questions of uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty, you don't question them. So you don't question Xinjiang, you don't question Tibet, you don't question China, you don't, you don't question Taiwan, you don't question South China Sea. Those things you don't question. Those are off limits. Those are your no-go zones. Likewise, sort of questioning the validity of the Belt and Road, whether it's good at all, whether it's a useful policy at all, is going to be a no-go zone given that it's now part of Xi Jinping's core agenda and it's part of the constitution and all that. Um, likewise, questioning the system itself, that whether this party should be the vanguard and should be, it's a no-go zone. Uh, or whether Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign is motivated by political ends. Those are no-go zones. So anything that sort of destabilizes the system is a no-go zone. But within that system, there is a lot of space for some of these reportage because the state also sees it as beneficial. There's a level of this reportage that the state will permit um, before it clamps down. So it's not like, uh, I'll give you, this is one of those classic sort of examples, is uh, um, which is what you're seeing in India right now, where there's Me Too with the Me Too movement in India, where one re revelation has led to another and another and another, and there's sort of cascading effect. Um, that's something that the Chinese government is worried about. So when you see a mining scandal in Jiangsu province, uh, and it becomes sort of the social media storm. So while the government is glad that it's got this data and it's got this information on local leadership, it'll punish whom it has to punish. It'll want the media to publicize the fact that there was this punishment met out. Um, so it sort of closes the loop. But it doesn't want that to then lead to, oh, you know what, there is a social media chatter that apart from Jiangsu in Hunan also there was a similar sort of scandal. And then here also there was a similar because, sort of scandal. Because that implies that the system has absolutely. Issues. So okay. you, your fear is of that. So after a certain level, if things attain a certain critical mass, you start to see this censorship come into play on social media and other places. And you tell the media, okay, you've done this, no longer. No more covering of this. And then sometime back, whatever, if there is that scandal information which is back, you take action however you want to take action, given on your political and economic priorities. But there is a lot of managing, therefore. But within that management, there are people who do some really good in an instructive investigative journalism. But as a whole, if you were to look at the national media, um, so things like Xinhua, things like CGTN, things, CCTV as a whole, not just CGTN, um, things like China Radio International. By and large, yes, on certain fundamental issues, you do parrot the government's line. You don't necessarily question it. Um, but even there, some might adopt a more hawkish line within the government some, absolutely something a little more absolutely so permissible but not quite the view so this is how i would look at it and i think part of this and this is something that is underappreciated uh, which is uh, the role of the market so through the 2000s as this media explosion is happening in china there is also this case for how do you judge effectiveness of the media so if everybody is publishing the same propaganda uh, who's reading who's watching so you need to diversify, you need to create an audience also, because what's the point of having all this out there with nobody watching? Um, so therefore, there is also this need to have some of these other forms of reportage, have these other sort of things that you look into, investigate, do some of these things, and also innovate in how you put out the propaganda. So and how a, you sensationalize. How you sensationalize, how you do all of those things. While I was in China, it was a running strand across multiple major news outlets that we measure our success by reach. And that wasn't any different from my experience in any Indian news outlet. So in any Indian news outlet, particularly television, sort of the first thing that you would see is TRPs. Um, and then you would go on to qualitative business. And you can see that it's, it's very transparent. I mean, I, all our television channels are constantly talking about how we are number one um, based on TRPs. Um, but digitally, you'd look at oh, how many Facebook followers I have, what are my engagement figures, Twitter, you'd do something similar. Um, so you're looking at analytics. While I was at CGT and we had this constant analytics conversation, uh, 
which was fascinating to me because you were measuring reach for a purpose, not just for your own satisfaction. Obviously, to share it with your bosses who are senior party members and so on and so forth. So they were also concerned about reach. And as a entity, if you're concerned about reach, you are going to diversify. You're going to do different things. Um, you won't just put out the same Xinhua copy of Xi Jinping said this. Uh, you can put that bit in a animated format with a hip hop song or a rap song or whatever, uh, but it's still the same thing, but you need to do more different sorts of content. And I think that's where you saw the media evolving because of the market, because you wanted to capture market share because the greater the market share you captured, the more important you became also within your little ecosystem of right. state media. Right. So um, in, which is very similar to here, right? I mean, here you might want more market share to raise more investment as well, but probably you get more state investment the more you show reach. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, and so that drive towards sensationalism and reach is absolutely. the same. And to me, the sort of one of the best examples of this was last year when during the Doklam incident, during the Doklam crisis, Xinhua, which is generally not that violent, it's quite, it's like a government news wire. There are opinion pieces which can be quite, you know, sort of out of left field but that video that they put out which became popular in India is this racist video where they showed a Sikh man uh, sort of with some uh, absolutely hair glued on their yeah, face horrible and... makeup and talking uh, sort of fundamentally racist as a video in terms of how they portrayed Indians not just physically but also sort of you try to mock Indians physically but you also try to mock them intellectually by saying that they're dumb and they don't understand it we've been saying the same thing to them again and again for the last few weeks and they just don't get it because they're that dumb I don't see that as something which is uh, and I have no way to confirm this but I did not see that as something which was centrally mandated controlled with censors sitting there and saying yes we must do this that was an entity within the organization a department within the organization saying, how do we make this argument that we have that India is not getting our point and we've been saying the same thing and India is just being blind to our point? How do we make it cool for the more trendy guys to sort of follow it? How is it going to get viral? And that's what they ended up doing, which says a lot about other things. So not some grand uh, Chinese government no, plan. No, no. It and couldn't it have been so sloppy if it was. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And no, it might have been sloppy, but it's uh, even if it was government mandated. But I don't see a censor sitting over there, government censor sitting over there. Uh, and I've seen government censors sitting in offices, but I don't see that as the case. The government censors are usually very particular about language, terminology and all that because you are so bureaucratic in how you function. This is somebody saying, how do we become cool? And the definition of cool is very flawed, but this is somebody doing that. And that actually shows you somewhere where the control, where the sort of dynamic would push and pull of control and freedom. That there is the freedom and therefore you do something so stupid. But there is also deep, con you know, that freedom operates within a broad framework of control. Right. Um, and that's how I would sort of classify the media environment. That's really interesting and far more nuanced than uh, what most of us end up yeah. believing. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath, and the Pragati Podcast will be back with Manoj Keval Ramani after this short break. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune in to Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. Welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. Myth number six. This is about... Uh, Chinese industry and Chinese manufacturing and Chinese private sector. The Chinese copy very well, but do not innovate. We've heard this time and again, we see cheap plastic things that flood our markets. And, oh, I mean, whenever somebody in the West makes a great product, the Chinese know how to copy it. I have, I mean, we heard that this is a little less true, but tell us more about it. Um, okay, I'm actually... This is a question which I will answer by saying yes and no. Yes, because they do copy fairly well. Um, and no, because they do innovate also. Um, and there's a lot of pride associated with some of this. Uh, um, it's not just about economics. Um, so when Xi Jinping spoke 
in March 2018, he addressed, uh, this was an unprecedented moment. He had become president for the second time, which was not unprecedented. But there were constitutional changes where he could now be president for life if he wanted to. Um, and Xi Jinping addressed the National People's Congress, which is the country's parliament, um, which is unprecedented. The presidents don't do that necessarily. Um, and he, in his address, he spoke, it was a sort of long sort of 30 minute address where he talks about a number of things. But one of the things that he spoke about was Chinese innovation. So there's a sentence in that where he talks about uh, our four great contributions, things like gunpowder, the compass, um, paper, and these sorts of things. So you can see that fundamentally there is a sense of pride that we do innovate. Uh, so this copycat business sticks and it hurts. At least it hurts today. The fact that there has been design IPR issues, uh, technology IPR issues uh, is evident in what's playing out between China and US. And there were issues like that between the US and UK 100, 150 years ago. Absolutely. Um, and so, yes, you do copy well, particularly on some of these things, but you've also innovated. And my sort of the classy example that I have for Chinese innovation today uh, is the WeChat app by Tencent. But if you just look at other things also, you look at the Alibaba e-commerce platforms, you look at when they say how they want to. So one of the innovations that they talk about, particularly the government, is uh, governance innovation. So the Chinese system in itself of how a Leninist party structure has adapted to a market economy and all of that is, they would say that this is an innovation in itself. But okay, I'm moving those sort of more political and those sorts of issues but from tell a us more about wechat as one example yeah so um so wechat is tencent's messaging app um tencent is one of the biggest technology firms in the country um and uh, wechat has about 1 billion plus users um which is a massive number predominantly mostly in china or chinese communities outside of the mainland um and it's an app that began as a messaging app um, so it was, I remember back in 2013, when I sort of first gotten on to WeChat, uh, I always had this conversation with a lot of my colleagues in the West, who used to rib my Chinese colleagues saying things like, uh, you've just ripped off WhatsApp, you know, and you've called it WeChat. And it's, you know, this is a rip off and it's a rip off. And, and they, a lot of them, none of these people were associated with WeChat, uh, with Tencent, but uh, they found it very offensive. Um, and they would constantly sort of argue back saying, no, 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 it's our own product and it's different and blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, it's just been a couple of years and today you can't compare WeChat to WhatsApp. While WhatsApp has remained predominantly a messaging app, WeChat has morphed into an entire internet ecosystem of its own. It's morphed into a portal. I mean, you can do absolutely everything via WeChat. Yes, there are language barriers in some ways because when you're doing some of these transactions, there are language barriers. But at a certain point of time, towards the end of my tenure in Beijing, didn't ever feel the need to carry cash or to carry cards. Uh, my phone did everything for me through WeChat. So whether it was buying things at a store, whether it was taking the bus, paying the cab, whether it was on the metro station, whether it was shopping, whether it was making payments, whether it was banking transactions, whether it was bills, everything I did through WeChat. Now, a lot of us in India today, when we pay our bills and those electricity bills, water bills, any of those other bills, we log on to a vendor's platform and we go and pay the bill. And there are some common platforms where you can go and pay your bills. But to have that within one app, to have your entire banking system within one app, to have everything within one app. Um, it's something that was the innovation sort of comes from there um, to have all of that within one app. I could book my uh, movie tickets from WeChat. I didn't need to. I just didn't need anything else. Um, now, the ability to innovate came from market share access to funding and all of those things, which obviously the government had protected you by having a broad protectionist policy where things like WhatsApp and all were difficult to use in China. But it was not that the protectionism led you to a space of complacency where you didn't innovate. You developed, you innovated, and you created a product which today is qualitatively far superior in terms of those services to WhatsApp. Yes, there are issues of privacy and surveillance and all of those, um, but I'm just going to sort of pack them aside uh, to one side and just look at the innovative bit over there. Right. And there's a marked difference. 
I mean, this also explains a little bit of the China envy that we have in India as a government and as a private sector, right? You know, if you are an e-commerce company, you say, oh, I have to deal with Amazon. I have to deal with all these foreign players yeah. who with uh, greater access to capital. So if we were more like China and we built some sort of a firewall around us too, then we could innovate more, which is a little specious to me. Yeah. But I mean, it explains the China envy. Yeah, I mean... Uh- yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue in favor of a protectionist policy, but what I'm going to say is that uh, if a lot of some of the arguments of uh, against some of these protectionist policies is that it is going to create an environment where there will be inefficiencies and, you know, uh, there will be winners and losers picked by the government and so on and so forth. Um, and you would benefit with collaboration, all of which is true and all of which is evident in China. Um in a system like that, where the government is willing to make that trade-off, which is what the Chinese system is allowing themselves to do, what I find impressive is that it has not bred complacency. There have been innovations. And it is evident because these companies are today also global players. So Alibaba is not just a Chinese player. It is a global player. Um, Tencent is a growing global player. So these are not fly-by-night operations which are there because they are supported by the government and because of certain protectionist policies. The protectionism has helped immensely, but it's also meant that there has been innovation. um, And that's largely because there has been so much market demand. Because people are wealthy and because there is money to go and there is market to cater to, you're doing that. In India, as the market grows, one hopes that you will find... Indian entrepreneurs coming up with newer things. But I I don't think it, protectionism, therefore, is the answer in an Indian system. Um, but I think a certain degree of uh, support for entrepreneurship uh, without necessarily blocking out people is needed. But then that's an old, a whole different argument. Absolutely. Time. And even for me, you know, the first time we saw Chinese phones in India, mm-hmm. uh, these were sort of packaged by Micromax, Carbon, and initially they were quite low-end, buggy, the software was messy, and so on. But over time, you've seen now Xiaomi phones that sell at 15,000 rupees uh, a pop are outstanding in uh, almost everything and are uh, providing a product or a service that is very, very hard to match. I mean, the iPhone is what, four to eight times as expensive. Absolutely. And and now you have Chinese phones that are there at many parts of the market. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, uh, and competitive. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, uh, so to me, this whole uh, business of the Chinese don't innovate is, even if I didn't know any of this other stuff, even if I had never experienced a Chinese product, uh, which is very difficult to do if you're living in this world. But <laughs> even if I had never experienced a Chinese product, but if I just switched on the television and I saw or read a newspaper and I saw, oh, Donald Trump is fighting with the Chinese and there's this argument between the Americans and the Chinese and a lot of it is about innovation. The fact that you are competing on innovation shows that you do innovate. It's not that you just copy. There is also, yes, you do, you do infringe uh, there are violations of intellectual property rights and all of that, but this is an uh, this contest is about more than just immediate IPR and you know infringement and all of that. It is about fundamentally who controls, who innovates and who has the capacity and who controls that capacity, um, and that tells you that there is innovation that's happening. Um, it's not just copycats. Yeah. All right. Let's do myth seven date. Myth seven. Uh, China has successfully controlled its overpopulation problem and has achieved more as a country because of it. We feel this all the time that overpopulation is one of India's biggest problems. We still have, uh, you know, people have so many children. There's so much uh, population growth and that's putting a strain on our system. And China sometimes is an example of how they did this well. Hmm. Actually, no, not at all. I don't think that any of China's growth is about uh, a demand side correction. It was a supply side correction. No, so, and even the demand, I mean, more people means more people who can work. More people who can work, yeah. And uh, so uh, this entire one-child policy business, it depends on how you're going to talk, how you're going to define success. So none of this growth has come because suddenly you had fewer mouths to feed. That's not how it works. You know, uh, uh, what happened over the years is that, yes, you tried to control population, but uh, and you that led to massive excesses, lots of human rights abuses. And it was I mean, to me, if you were to look back uh, more than sort of 
the crushing of the pro-democracy movement in Tiananmen and more than any of these other things. This single policy was one of the biggest failures of the Chinese government. Just from a very human perspective, you have looked at human beings as factors of production as opposed to inherently human beings. That's the basis of a policy like this, which says that we need to control population because we need to control this as a factor. Um, and that's a fundamentally flawed way of looking at human beings. It caused massive human rights violations. Um, these are very well documented from forced abortions to monitoring of the women's menstrual cycles and all these sort of horrendous stories are there. And then, and also the gender imbalance that it's eventually led to. Because, because people had to pick one child and they wanted a certain absolutely. gender. Absolutely. It led to creative ways of people avoiding uh, sort of things. So there was a system where you could pay a fine and you can have a second child. Um, so it led to some sort of, you know, systemic give and take between people and government. And it also led to people escaping the mainland to have children elsewhere. Okay. Um, there have been lots of cases where people have migrated to other countries just to have children where people have escaped from the mainland to Hong Kong and have children in Hong Kong. I know of people who've had, of couples who are Chinese nationals, citizens of the PRC, um, but their children are Hong Kong residents and Hong Kong nationals essentially. Um, and uh, they that's because every time you got pregnant, you came there to a distant relative, you had a child over there and the child is born in Hong Kong. Um, and therefore, a couple of some years ago, there was a sort of stricter border controls where if you were a pregnant woman, there was lots of scrutiny if you're traveling to wow. Hong Kong. Um, so there was a lot of that. So, but beyond all this, if you were to just look at it as a, from a sort of purely economic point of view, removing the humanity of it and looking at people as factors of production, you've created a structural problem today for yourself in terms of your population is aging, your labor force is shrinking. And now in the last few years, you've come to a point where uh, this is not something that the Chinese government has realized in the last four or five years. This is something that's been, as a conversation has been going on for a decade plus, a decade and a half at least. But the problem is that you had such an entrenched bureaucracy around family planning. How do you eliminate it? Because there are so many interests tied to it. And it became very difficult to eliminate it. And under Xi Jinping, he first announced a change from one to selective two children, where essentially couples who were in one person, one of the partners is a single child. Uh, that couple was allowed to now have two children. Wow. Now, I think fundamental in that policy shift is an acceptance of the fact that not everybody adhered to the one child policy. <laughs> um, but... It's also the fact that once you did that, you were hoping that you wanted to, why did you do that? That was a compromise between maintaining the bureaucracy of the family planning, but also realizing that the policy has been a failure. Now you've got another structural problem. Shortly after that, the policy was essentially junk. So some of this was applied to this in such a selective manner. Some of it was selectively in certain regions. And then it was eventually finally just completely junked. And then this year, the bureaucracy has also been uh, shifted. Um, but Junking of this policy was essentially this imperative that we now need to incentivize people to have more children. So please have two children. Please have three children. Because we are an aging society by 2040 or 2050. I'm not entirely sure which year it is. But estimates suggest that by around that time, about one third of the Chinese population will be uh, above 60. So at retirement level. So people would be needing pensions and somebody would be needing to foot the bill for all of this. Right. Pensions, uh, healthcare costs. Absolutely. Lots of things. Absolutely. So... You need the workforce there and therefore you need to have children now. Um, but by all measures in the last few years, whatever government targets have been set for the number of children we need to have, um, they're not being met. Uh, and that's, China is also a richer society now. Absolutely. Women and, have more agency and fertility rates and, and it's also, childbearing it's rates also come no down. It's also no longer, uh, it's also no longer, the, the economy of having a child has changed. It's far more expensive. Getting them in a certain school is far more expensive. And couples who, you know, who are growing up, so sort of middle, upper middle class couples also today, if you're sort of looking at living in a city like Beijing, Shanghai, or even the second tier city, you're wondering how are you going to foot the bill? Uh, you need to buy a house. A house is incredibly expensive. And then you need to have the second child, the third, or third child, and their education. 
um, basic expenditures, medical, how are you going to foot the bill for all of this? And that's really difficult. And that's not a problem which uh, is specific to China. I mean, I see that in my own personal life uh, where, uh, you know, friends my age who sort of, uh, you know, who just sort of after a few years of marriage now had their first child and all. When we have a conversation about, would you consider a second child? I said, no, it's just economically not possible. And I think that's quite universal. That that's one of the reasons why sort of rates fall. And I think that's what the government is going to struggle with. Because how do you change this fundamentally? Yes, you might give benefits and incentives and subsidies and say, okay, for the primary schooling will be free, that will be free. But there is still a cost involved and there is still time involved. Um, and marriages obviously now happen later. So that changes the economics of it all. So there are structural dynamics and you don't know uh, and now you're going to struggle with this. And, and this is perhaps the least reversible of all their absolutely, failures, right? Absolutely. You can't control this per se. And other governments have also tried it in other countries. The Japanese are trying something like this, but it's not really working because it's very, very difficult to do this. You can force and contain people from having children, which you have shown by massively abusing their basic rights. You can't force them to have children. That's far more complicated. Um, so, yeah, so that's where they are at. So I don't think that the policy is a success at all. I think it is a resounding failure. And if there was one blot, one post-cultural revolution blot on the government, I think this is it. So in India, I think this is the last of the things that we will we should be envious of China. Absolutely. Not at all. Not at all. And we should stop thinking about overpopulation as a problem. It is something that if incomes grow, if female literacy grows, Absolutely. if uh, women's empowerment grows yeah. automatically, Absolutely. it is something that will It's automatically something that will be taken care of. There are other things that will automatically alter this. There are other factors that will automatically alter this rather than you curbing this and violently invading an individual's most intimate space. It's just not on. Yeah, I'm really hoping that whatever vestiges of Indian bureaucracy is there around population control also goes away. Yeah. There are still a few states where uh, I think private doctors get a subsidy of 10 or 15,000 rupees if they do a vasectomy or a hysterectomy. Mm. And you had enough quacks yeah. uh, who have sprung up yeah. just, just to take this money. Yep. So I, I hope the vestiges of it will go away. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath, and the Pragati Podcast will be back with Manoj Keval Ramani after this short break. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Varma, and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. So Manoj, we come to myth number eight. And this is the last one for now. China has a grand strategy to take over the world. Hmm. We see this with the one belt, one road, the new silk route, the string of pearls of, uh, you know, around the Indian Ocean. <laughs> we see this with China coming everywhere with China playing a large role in Africa. So is China trying to take over the world? <laughs> Does it have a grand strategy? Um, so, okay. So there are two sets of arguments on this, uh, on this grand strategy bit. And it's been five years that the Belt and Road was launched. Um, and I, after five years of observing it, I sort of find myself veering more towards the no there is this is not a grand strategy uh, in terms of how it's operating. 
whether Xi Jinping and the Communist Party leadership thought of it as a grand strategy, I can't say. Um, it's possible. It's possible. But in the way it's operating and it's being implemented, I don't see this as a grand strategy. What I do see it as addressing certain immediate needs. And I'll get to that a little bit later. But first, so there is, so there are two people that I would sort of urge people to go and check out and read and listen to. One is Michael Swain and one is Nadish Roland. Um, so Nadish Roland's argument is essentially that this is a grand strategy. Um, and Michael Swain says, I'm sorry, but this is not a grand strategy. And both make very valid points. So you, it depends on where you stand. You can be easily swayed. My perception is that a lot of how you will answer this question is your vantage point of looking at Belt and Road. So if you're sitting as a policymaker in India and you're seeing China's expanded role in the subcontinent um, and expanded military and naval infrastructure that's being built up, um, and this concern in China where they want to expand port development in South Asia and the Indian subcontinent, I can see why you would legitimately see it from the point of view of containment, string of pearls, hemming India and all of that. And therefore, it's a strategy to do this. Um, because those are your insecurities and your anxieties. Um, so that's fair. From a Chinese point of view, if I was to see it, those can be byproducts where India feels insecure. And those byproducts are not necessarily good even for them. Because the more India feels insecure, the more India sort of, you know, protests, contests, which is what we've seen in the last year with India saying, oh, dead trap, oh, uh, sovereignty, and justifiably so sovereignty. The dead trap, not applicable to India at the moment. But that's one of the concerns that India raised last year. Uh, so, But beyond the sovereignty bit, the other constraints are sort of more our insecurities. The sovereignty bit is a legitimate legal consideration that India has. Um, but from a Chinese perspective, that might not necessarily be a good thing that India gets so up in arms about it. And that's why you've seen a lot of the times that the Chinese have sort of told the Indian side that, no, no, we can talk about some changes and we can talk about this. And last year we heard all these things about, oh, we might just change the name of CPEC or we might alter the route for you to be far more comfortable or we could do this or we could do that. None of this was officially in terms of publicly said that these are our proposals to India. But there's a lot of sort of backroom talk that this is what we are, we could talk about, whatever. You know, a decade ago, I mean, I would have raised the myth, you know, China has this idea of a peaceful rise. Hmm. But that was also more or less propaganda from the Chinese yeah, side. Right? Um, that, that most countries, when they've grown in power, have done so violently. You yeah. can see that in Europe. You can see that in uh, the United States. There was a world war, which yeah. two world wars, which helped them rise up. But yeah. China is going to do this peacefully. Yeah. And their argument for peaceful rise is that we've not invaded anybody. Of course, they don't see what they've done in the South China Sea as clearly changing things, what they are doing militarily in uh, Doklam. And of as, course, Tibet was not one such thing. Tibet, obviously, is, it's something that's 50, 60 years ago. So I'm going to put that aside right now. I'm talking about even right now, immediately, in the immediate times. Um, if you look at the South China Sea, what they've done, and if you look at what they're doing in Doklam, uh, it's a clear you know, change of status quo. There's a clear uh, military dimension to all this. It's not peaceful. There's clear coercion. Um, so that's so coercion is obviously part of diplomacy. And so is such obfuscation and such messaging of peaceful rise and peaceful development. Um, but what this actually tells you is that there is also a concern within strands of this thought about how others will react to you uh, and uh, how do you mitigate some of their concerns. Uh, I don't think the Chinese have been very good at doing that. Um, but you can see that there is a strand of thought of that. And I, I think that last year when with regard to India, uh, while Doklam was happening was one specific issue. But even when leading up to the Belt and Road Summit, the Belt and Road Forum, which Xi Jinping uh, sort of spearheaded last year, um, and India chose not to attend that forum. That was before Doklam happened. Um, there was uh, a lot of effort, uh, at least publicly in terms of reports and official spokespersons saying things, where you wanted to get India on board. Until India actually put out that, the Ministry of External Affairs put out that statement saying that... Uh, Oh, we have issues about sustainability, debt sustainability, uh, sovereignty, obviously primary and all that. Um, and then the Chinese were sort of like, well, okay, we can't get you on board. But even then there have been efforts made. Um, so my argument, therefore, is that why I would not sort of look at it as a grand strategy is because you look at how this is being implemented. Now, Belt and Road was announced as a political campaign. Look at Xi Jinping as a political leader who's announced a massive campaign. 
and you've got all these actors at different levels of government and in the bureaucracy who see it as an opportunity to bandwagon within the sort of political economy that we've discussed in the previous time that we spoke. And so everything, even projects that were ongoing investments that were discussed and finalized before 2013, get tagged with this Belt and Road tag. So you have projects which are signed and inked and have been underway since 2011, which become part of Belt and Road. And that's not because Beijing is sitting and signing off on this. It's because it's partly a political program. So the Beijing also wants things under this rubric to become bigger. So it looks like it's more than what it is, which is important for its domestic and, and potential international partners. But also for those local guys, tagging something as Belt and the Road gives you more access to funds, more access to opportunities, more access to clearances from Beijing to do certain things. Yeah, we've seen the same in India. You make something, make in India, you make something. Such Bharat. Absolutely. Might have been a good or a bad local initiative. Absolutely. But, but you give it wings when you... Absolutely. And that is exactly how I would sort of categorize Belton. Because when you're starting to describe the beginning of flights between certain cities in China and London as Belton Road Initiative, uh, connectivity under Belt and Road. That's not really anything to do with Belt and Road. You would have had flights irrespective. I mean, that's uh, much more to do with Belt and Road or anything. Um, or you're saying train connectivity, uh, you know, an existing line which has been built, which is being uh, in construction since 2008, 2009, is now completed after the Belt and Road is announced. And you've called that as an example of Belt and Road. It's not. Um, so a lot of this is sort of multiple actors doing multiple things some which cause friction, some which don't cause friction, some which fit an agenda which is about shifting your overcapacity issues, meeting sort of goals of developing the western part of China, which is fairly poor and fairly underdeveloped, uh, which is about access to resources and security of certain resources, which is about securing some of your Syrians, which is about improving connectivity to secure your own trade supplies. All of those sorts of things, which are multiple, multiple drivers. Also about expanding your, making your organizations go global, making them compete in different markets. All of those sorts of things. So there's a plethora of sort of things which are uh, driving this initiative. Um, and for that, yes, because the system is a unitary system in that sense, um, it's acting in unison in different ways and different interest groups are therefore playing a role. So therefore, you might see that as a strategy saying all state or state power and state resources are being deployed to meet this particular end. But it's also these guys, these state actors and interest groups are seeing opportunities and therefore are playing a role. And um, are actually meeting different ends. Exactly. Um, so that is how I would sort of characterize it. Does it give certain strategic advantages to Beijing when you sort of step back and look at the big picture? Perhaps, yes. But if what we've seen in the last year with countries as small as uh, Sierra Leone, you know, countries like Malaysia, countries like Myanmar, which is facing international criticism and isolation over the Rohingya issue, and which is therefore even more sort of, uh, its proximity to China is growing, even that country is renegotiating it down from potentially $7 billion dollars to a $1.2, $1.3 billion project. There is no grand strategy. Does Do benefits accrue to the Chinese government, strategic benefits, by having in place certain infrastructure, certain places? Yes. Is that the motivation that's driving all this at all costs? I sort of would doubt it. Uh, there are multiple reasons why this is being driven. And I see it as a political initiative where multiple interest groups are finding their own spaces, including the Chinese armed forces. For the Chinese armed forces, as your one of the concepts of this grand strategy business is that, oh, this will expand China's force presence and force projection capacity. Of course it will. As your interests expand globally, um, you will want to protect them. Um, and therefore, you will find ways to expand your presence also. But today... There is one international base, essentially, that China has, which is the base in Djibouti. Um, there's a lot of talk about a base in Pakistan, potentially Hamban Tota being militarized, and potentially in Myanmar, and potentially heaven knows where else. Um, but those are not easy things to do. I mean, if you were thinking of this grand strategy, this unitary actor with a grand strategy moving in unison, you won't be having the brickbat from Malaysia, Myanmar and even tiny Maldives where everything was lost from an Indian point of view a month ago. 
you know, where we have no local stand and, you know, China has completely done this and completely done that. But lo and behold, uh, Yamin is out. Um, so I don't see this as grand strategy. Uh, I can see why it's a seductive argument. Right. Um, but I sort of struggle to go down that road. And and from what you told me, my takeaway is also a lot of what we see as this grand uh, outward projection of strategy is actually meeting many domestic concerns from over capacity. You want to employ people. You want to do a lot of things. Yes. And it's not necessarily foreign policy or strategy from an external. Yeah. I mean, those are also goals that you are meeting, of course. Which is which is fine, but which it's not fine. grand strategy. But it's not. I wouldn't classify that as grand strategy because you're meeting fundamentally different goals um, to uh, uh, to achieve. Uh, to, so what's happening is fundamentally different from a pl- I mean, underlying the grand strategy assumption is not just different uh, resources of the state, all resources of the state being deployed, but also somewhere a coordinated effort uh, towards a fairly defined objective. I don't see that as happening. Um whether that is within the mind space of the Chinese leadership, I can't say. But I don't see that as playing out on the ground, actually. What I see playing out on the ground is a far more sort of dissipated, disparate set of things that are happening. Um, and far more sort of push and pull. Um, I mean, forget all the other countries that I've spoken to you about. China has two close partners in the world. Uh, they don't have allies potentially, but they're two really close partners. One is North Korea, uh, where they've had this traditional relationship. And the other is Pakistan. Even with Pakistan, with the change in government, they're having difficulties. <laughs> Despite us knowing fully well that who controls the reins of power in Pakistan, the reins of power effectively in Pakistan. But they're having difficulties. It's not something that's... Uh, and the difficulties arise because of uncoordinated nature of actions. I mean, also differences in different countries. So, so, yeah. so even if... At one level, say, okay, there is some thought of a grand strategy. It's not translating to the ground and it's not Absolutely. effective. It's, it's not. not. And But I can see why somebody sitting in Delhi, a policymaker sitting in Delhi or a think, so somebody in the think tank in Delhi would see all of this and see something coordinated happening. Um, because you're looking at it from your vantage point and how it's impinging on your interests. So it's fair for you to sort of make that assumption that, oh, this is going to happen. But it's also important for you to realize that your assumption is because of your worldview as opposed to necessarily what the other party's worldview would be. So even if you want to create a counter strategy, that has to take a different shape. Yeah, absolutely. It can't just be looking at, you don't necessarily see it and say that there is this adversarial relationship fundamentally, which is developing. You can't essentially see it as a binary. You have to understand that there are underlying forces within China, which are operating in for very different purposes and very different reasons. Um, and you also have to see whether you can leverage some of those. Um, as opposed to necessarily saying like, oh, you're building this plant in Myanmar or this port in Bangladesh or wherever else. We need to fund a more expensive one or we need to compete with you financially. You don't need to necessarily because there are different reasons why things are happening and you can actually play to your own strengths. Um, and a product of all of those, if they become militarized, whatever might be to hem you in. But the objective, I don't think is, I don't think somebody sitting there decided that we need to build these ports across India so that we can hem India in. Fantasies of some military guys, fair enough. But actual policy reality, I'm doubtful. Thank you so much, Manoj. Thank you. I mean, it, you've spent close to two hours with us on the Pragati podcast, but I know for a fact that those were our listeners and I am richer uh, for it. And I think we've had a much more nuanced understanding of China at the end of this. Uh, thank you so much. This has been lovely to do. I've enjoyed it. I didn't know where the two hours went. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Manoj. Thanks. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions for Manoj or for us, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And don't forget to check out the weekly newsletter Eye on China by Manoj on thinkpragati.com. Visit our website at thinkpragati.com for your daily dose of brain fodder on all things public policy. You can subscribe to the Pragati podcast on the IVM podcast app or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We're there everywhere. Did I just catch you on your way to work? Or did you end up pulling an all-nighter? Let me guess, you have a packed schedule for the day, the week, and probably the month and the year. 
that's a lot for your mind to handle, don't you think? This buzzing chaos also brings tons of negative thoughts. Am I right? Try spinning that bottle in a positive direction with me, Chetna, on the Positively Unlimited podcast every Monday on IBM Podcasts. It's time to change your life one alphabet at a time. Look, up in the internet, it's a meme. No, it's a cat video. No, it's the Geek Fruit podcast. That's right. We interrupt this riveting broadcast to tell you about our show, The Geek Fruit Podcast, where Tejas, Dinkar, and I, Chishnu, talk about everything in pop culture, including DC, Marvel, Star Wars, Netflix, and everything in between. You know how your friends hate it when you ramble about some nerdy crap and you just want somebody to listen to you? Well, sorry, there's nothing we can do about that, but come listen to us ramble and it'll almost be like the real thing. Kind of. Listen to new episodes of the Geek Fruit Podcast every Monday and the Geek Fruit Bulletin every Thursday on iTunes, Google Podcasts, the IVM app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy listening, you nerds. <laughs>